This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 10 of Equestrian Legends. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and my guest this week is American show jumper Colonel John Russell. Colonel John Russell was born on February 2, 1920, in Dolphin, Pennsylvania. Growing up on the family dairy farm, his childhood riding consisted mainly of cowboys and Indians, but it sowed the seed for more serious pursuits, and he soon focused his attention on jumping. A career army officer, he has served in several countries and was awarded numerous decorations, including a World War II Victory Medal, African, European and National Defence Medals, a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart. John was a member of several U.S. Nations Cup teams and rode on the last official U.S. Army Olympic team in the 1948 London Games and the first civilian U.S. team at the 1952 Games in Helsinki, riding Democrat to a team bronze medal. In 1954, he was ranked the fourth most successful rider in Germany. He represented the U.S. as an individual in the 1955 World Championships at Aachen before joining Bertolin de Nemeth's first USET squad, touring Europe in preparation for the Stockholm Olympics. Military duties precluded another attempt at the Games and led to his retirement as a competitor. Reassignment in the U.S. as officer in charge of the U.S. modern pentathlon team maintained his relationship with the Olympics, both as an officer and later as civilian coach of the team. His 1978 pentathlon team included the first American in 60 years to win the individual and team world championship titles. He has been recognized with the U.S. Hunter Jumper Association's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2010, inducted into the Show Jumping Hall of Fame in 2001, awarded a gold medal of honor by the International Pentathlon Association, inducted into the Pentathlon Hall of Fame, and received the 2001 FEI Silver Badge of Honor for competing in 20 Nations Cups. His official equestrian duties include the 1998 Atlanta Olympic Games as a judge and technical delegate for eventing and as an FEI dressage judge. Colonel John Russell has been married three times and has two sons and three grandchildren. Together with his wife Shane, they operate the Russell Equestrian Center in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome and thank you for being my guest this week. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, now you have, a, I think, still a very busy life in San Antonio, Texas. Um, while many people might have be forgiven for slowing down a little bit, it seems that life is still treating you well and you're able to be continually active in the horse world with your own business. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, up every morning and we don't finish until 7, 8 o'clock at night. We have a stable here of about 60 horses. All sports horses. So are you still riding yourself, or are you spending most of your time teaching? Do you get on a horse? Uh, no, I stopped riding some time ago, uh, and I, I teach now um, mostly just the jumpers. 
So most, mostly in the jumping world, that's where your focus has been now all of your life, really, hasn't it? Yes, yeah. Well, let's go back to the very early days, if we may. Uh, I believe you, you grew up in a, in a family farm in Pennsylvania. Give us a, a picture of what those early days of your childhood were like. Was it a happy childhood in, in those days? Oh, yes. Yeah, we lived on a... It was, of course, during the Depression, and uh, we lived on a big farm, so it never really bothered me too much. We had lots of horses and... Uh, most of those days, mostly trotters and pacers for my father. And uh, I had a pony probably the time I was five, and uh, I just seemed to be able to, be able to keep riding on through, on through after that. So it was something that was just available to you, so you picked it up just as any child would when being exposed to horses. Were, you, were your parents both competitive, was it, or was it just your father? No, just my father. And, and apart from the trotters and that, uh, did he have any other interest in any other type of equestrian sport? No, not really. Uh, early on, I started uh, the jumpers, and then, of course, he started taking me around to the horse shows and helping me any way he could, but he was not a jump rider himself, no. So was he primarily a farmer then? John? Yes. We were a Pennsylvania farmer. It was, uh, was really a dairy farmer. He had about 30 milk cows, which had been milked twice a day. Now, how about your mother? How did she fit into the family business of farming and, and uh, you presumably supporting your uh, passion for ponies at that early age? Well, she pretty much... Uh, I guess he pretty much ran the place. Uh, of course, uh, uh, in those days, he had lots of farm help, and so uh, one or two meals a day, you know, were with a lot of people, which she seemed to be able to handle. And uh, she uh, she sometimes helped with the, the milking and that sort of thing also. Uh, did you have any siblings that were also... Uh, interested in horses and getting involved with ponies at that as you were children? No, I was the only one that uh, sort of hooked up with horses. So what would be a typical day with, as, a, as a very young child then? Presumably you, you were in school at an early age. Did you ride to school or how did you get to school even? Yes, uh, my first school was a little one-room schoolhouse. And it was uh, a mile and a half from the farm. And initially, I I rode a pony to school and back home. And the school had a little lead to where you could, uh, you know, you tie them up all day. And, uh, of course, at noon, we learned how to trick ride and all that sort of stuff. You know, during recess. So it was... Uh, uh, pretty much at the, at the grade school, and then uh, later on, uh, we went to a consolidated school, and that was about three or four miles away, and uh, I rode a milk truck to school and then walked or ran home after school. Did you in- enjoy school? Were there any favorite subjects? Oh, 
course, we had the, from the, all the schools uh, in those days had a pretty good athletic program. I mean, you played ball and the baseball season and played football and the off season, you know, football season. So were, you, were you competitive, John, as a, as, a, as a boy outside of your horses and your ponies at the time? Did you have a competitive nature? Oh, yes. Yeah, I could, uh, I could always make whatever, whatever sport was being played at the school I was going to. So school obviously um, was a means to you, you something you had to do like any child, but you got the uh, obviously the advantage of being able to ride a school and back as a smaller child. And when did it actually become something that you wanted to be a little bit competitive as? With did did you have uh, the blessing of, of good ponies and horses at that time, or did you just have to ride anything your father found for you? Well, we pretty much rode whatever came down the line. Uh... And I really never got started until we finally bought a an old jumper from the circus. And then I was at 12 or 13, 14, I was able to, to you know, do the local shows and the open jumper with her because she was a really good jumper. So jumping, obviously, something you turned to easily, even though your father was into trotters and pacing. Did paces? Did you do that at all? Um, I never really took to it. I went to the races with him, and you know, helped around and drove a few. Uh, but as soon as they were through racing or didn't make it with raceway, of course, I always tried them over fences, which not many of them were much good at. <laughs> so did did you race at all yourself? Did you do any steeplechasing? Oh, the biggest racing I did was out in the country, uh the other farmers and uh there was a lot of the people that had one to one to hit townhouses in the local area and sometimes they had horses and uh, we had a lot of weekend uh flat racing up and down the dirt road right by the house. And you were pretty competitive, were you? I can imagine that, that you took that seriously from an early age, did you? Yeah, I happened to have one that was uh, was really good on the local level on the flat. I never did try to jump that one for whatever reason. It was a thoroughbred horse. So who were your early influences then in terms of, you know, learning the very basics in equitation, John? Where did you get that from? Was it from your father? or? Yeah, it was pretty much uh, what I picked up. And then I had a neighbor who was a colonel in the National Guard, and he had went to Fort Riley, so he knew a lot about it. And he helped me, and then... Uh, I guess at 19, I joined the Pennsylvania National Guard, which uh, uh, we were in B Troop for the night, and we had like 200 horses that you could ride any time at all. And we had instructors there, which all helped. So obviously they, yes, as you say, helped you with your career once you became a young man and were taking this seriously as part of your career. Who were, yeah. who were they, John? Because we hear of so many wonderful names of that era. Who were your biggest influences and instructors at that time? Oh, back when I was a kid, uh, the people that were tops of their game was 
course, Trapley Smith, Joe Green. Uh, they were they were the national champions, and both of them uh, helped me hit the shows and any time they could. So clearly, jumping was the most common pursuit for for young people then to get into competition, showing and and, and competing at that age. But a military career awaited you. Talk us through that. You mentioned that you joined the Cavalry National Guard in Pennsylvania, and and then of course you went to Fort Riley. What age would you have been then, John? And how did that take shape? Talk us through that. Well, I was in the National Guard and. Uh... Of course, uh, we did a number of maneuvers and all that sort of stuff with the uh, with horse cavalry, and then we did the uh, maneuvers in North Carolina with horse cavalry. At that point, when they gave us uh, a big tractor trailer that was hauled four eight horses and eight riders, and went to the national you know to the National Guard with that, and then. Uh, there was a bulletin on the board that said they were looking for people to go to officer school, so I applied and went to Fort Riley and came out of there as a second lieutenant. Then how long were you there? Uh, I think the course in those days was only three months. And then I went straight from there to B Troop of the 9th Cavalry, which happened to be at uh, Del Rio, Texas, and that was... In days before integration, and it was uh, white white officers and black soldiers, and it was again all horse cavalry. So you clearly you were twenty four seven in the cavalry with horses, totally absorbed in it. And it was a day in those days, of course, where it really was true horsemanship. You, you it was uh, not only military driven, but it really shaped the lives of so many young men, didn't it? To go through those, if you will, instructional and uh, you know the discipline of being around horses. What what did you think was most influential to you at that time, John? Because it clearly shaped your the rest of your life. Well, of course, uh, there in the, the horse cavalry regiment, we rode every day. And of course, the big thing was trying to train the soldiers how to ride. As many many of them were draftees, never saw horses before, so. Um, by that time, I could ride anything, and it was really riding pretty well. And then I went from there. Uh, well, they just manned the horse cavalry, and uh, I went to North Africa, and then from North Africa and North Italy. Or, and that started a whole new, different career. Well, yes, clearly being dispatched to uh, to Europe and and uh, you know to far off countries at that time must have seemed like an opportunity to you. I mean, was it something you 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 enjoyed doing, or was it something you felt was part of your career path? Well, I was a second lieutenant, and uh, uh, of course, that. that uh, in Italy, uh, I was with the 1st Armored Group, and uh, I think by then I was the first lieutenant. And at the casino, uh, we didn't do so well. I got wounded slightly, and the, the, uniform, the unit was pretty well disbanded. And, and I went with another outfit uh, to a school in, in uh, Tel Aviv. 
very close air support, in which I did uh, actually throughout the war. And I, I read somewhere that you actually were involved with re- revising the Manual of Horsemanship. Um, of course, the, those were wonderful manuals in their time. How did it, that come about? Well, after the, I ended up as the recon commander of the 88th Division, and we were ended up in a big villa north of Trieste. And it also had a stable of 20-odd horses, and a couple of them were really good jumpers. And uh, so I was able to campaign them throughout Italy and Austria and won quite a lot. And then uh, the chief of staff of uh, the division sent me to the equestrian team, which was just formed for the 48 games in uh, Fort Riley, Kansas. So that put me in Fort Riley, Kansas, uh, where I made the, the the competitive team. And of course, those preceding years when you were competing in Europe, you actually made your mark over there, didn't you? Being the first American to win a Nations Cup in Milan and becoming the leading rider of of Italy. What were those early memories of? being exposed to the competition scene in Europe because that was, of course, the days of the Dinzeo brothers. It must have been quite an impression on a young man. Oh, yeah. Well, my, uh, we, the team we shipped to Europe, and it, uh, it was the Army Equestrian team then. And, you know, we, uh, we had a really good team. We were champion of Rome and Lucerne. Lucerne, and I was lucky enough to... I think I went in 11 classes and won six of them. So I was you know, easily the champion of the show. And uh, that was when the Denzel brothers were starting and Harry Llewellyn from England and uh, Ponce from France and all the big state nations by then were really getting back in the same as we were. Then we went on and did most of the major shows in Europe, and Paris. London, Ireland, and so forth. And then um, after that, they disbanded the Army team. Now, that must have been disappointing for you. Oh, yes. It was was a really good life because with the Army, you know, they took care of everything, you know, the shipping of the horses, and, and you didn't have to worry about a thing except... As a junior officer, I normally had to travel with the horses, which in those days you shipped by train, which was actually pretty good. And pretty easy, I suppose, around uh, Europe because of the train system. Oh, oh yeah. You know, they, uh, they put you on a fast train and they hook the horses on a passenger train and uh, they could just zip you right there. And, of course, the horses, you only put about four to a big your big car, so they had lots of room, and well, of course, that was that was pretty easy competing. <laughs> and a lot of those shows, because they wanted the top riders, they'd often pay expenses, wouldn't they, for you to appear? Yes, and then uh, where it really helped me is after the, the army disbanded, I was sent back to Munich as the headquarters commandant of the corps or the brigade. And all of the Olympic horses 
were there waiting to be disposed of. So I had all of those. And so I almost immediately got to start competing. And well, some of the other riders were scattered around Europe. And oh, we were still able to do, uh, I remember we did Paris and uh, I did Berlin, uh, which is right during the Berlin airlift, which you couldn't get anything through, but uh, our horses went to Berlin and we competed. So even though I was in the Army and then commanding uh, the brigade, I still was able to ride just, in fact, all the big shows. Did you have any favorite venues? Yes. Just uh, around Germany, there were so many good shows. And, of course, I had all the, the good horses available, Blue Devil, Airmail, and... Democrat and the three-day horses, even their dressage horses. How many horses are we talking about, John? Because that's an awful lot of horses to be decommissioned at one time. Oh, we had about 30, and uh, of course they were all belong to the Army, so the Army had to provide something. We had uh, provided grooms and feed and all that so for them until they... Finally, decided to ship most of them back to the States, so they had to take care of them. So when they were shipped back, what happened to those horses, and what sort of value would they have had at that time, having had some exposure to Europeans showing? Well, some of them went back, and, uh, for example, Democrat went back to Riley, Blue Devil went back to Riley, Swivel Sticks went back to Riley, and some of them were just sold off. But then, uh, at that, uh, about 51, uh, they started to field a team, a civilian team, for the 52 games. And I was able to go back to Romney for those trials. And Democrat was there, and so was Blue Devil and a few other horses. And so I was able to ride Democrat in the... Uh, 52 Olympic trials, which we which he won. That put me on a 52 team. And there's an interesting story, I believe, um, when you won in Germany at the the Hamburg Spring Derby in 1952. There's a bit of a bone of contention with the Germans. They didn't want to concede that you were actually a non-American, the first uh, non-German to win. Yeah, well, that's, uh, Hamburg Derby, I believe, was in exactly the same and still is today uh, since 1920. And I was the first non-German and the first American, of course, to win it. And the horse was a quarter horse from uh, El Paso, Texas, called Rattlesnake Tom. And we had to produce his papers because on the team... We did have a few captured German horses, but he was not one of them. But uh, the Germans uh, liked to insist that he was was one that we took from them. But he was not. He was a strictly American horse. And, but uh, I think today he's still the only American horse that's ever won it. And maybe even the none, first none in Europe today. I think it's still won mostly by European horses. Yes, but you you obviously carved your name in the record books by doing that. That's quite funny. Now, at that time, of course, 
we're talking about the uh, the the period when you had contemporaries such as Colonel Earl Thompson and Colonel John Wofford. These obviously were wonderful mentors as well to you. Who who would you say was m- most influential in your development as a horseman? Well, I think it probably goes further back. Probably my first real intensive training was actually really from an Italian, uh, Count Keckler, way back in the old race. And then when the Army team, uh, Colonel Thompson was already a two-time Olympian, but he also hired the top German riders that were in those people that won medals in the 36 games. Uh, I don't remember a lot of them. The Weichen was one of them. Uh, he was a dressage coach. I think Barnikow or someone was one of the jumper coaches. But uh, at that time, uh, we got some criticism from him, you know, for hiring the Germans. But uh, as he said, and one time Patton said, if he took lessons, he's going to take them to the best in the world. And that's what we did. And uh, I think that was the best coaching I ever had. Uh, and then later, Ed Colonel offered, and he'd been around then. He'd been to one of my picks. And as I said in my introduction, you obviously have a, a Olympic uh, memories too. Which which are the most uh, fun memories for you in the in all the competitions that you did in Europe? Because uh, you went absolutely everywhere. And then the Olympics are always the cream. And the icing on the cake, I should say. What, what were your fondest memories, and which are you most proud of of those accomplishments, John? Well, well the Olympic Games, of course, that was you can't uh, you can't ever uh, do that again. At least not hardly ever. But the, the Hamburg Derby was a big win, and still is. And the Prescience in Paris was. Uh, pretty much for a big thing because it was in the big stadium in Paris and they made quite a thing of it. But I was just lucky. I was, uh, I was at a time and a place when I could win most of the big ones. And we mentioned, uh, of course, coaches, instructors at that time and one of those that was coach of the team, of course, is none other than Bertolin Denemethy. Uh, you know, uh, uh, obviously a legend in himself. Uh, do you remember fondly the the relationship you had with him and what you learned from him? Yeah, uh, uh, he came on board right after I was more or less finishing up my career. And uh, he and I became very good friends on the road. He and I uh, shared the hotel room together, so... Uh, yeah, you know, he's a he was a really good coach, but let's say by this time uh, I was on my final way out, and uh, we had a really good relationship. And then, of course, it came to the end of your military career, but it, at the same time, you were you were getting involved with modern pentathlon. Tell us how that came about, because that was clearly a turning point in your career, wasn't it? Yeah, well, that was a that same sort of by accident really started clear back in 48. The pentathlon team was competing there also right outside London. And a general came over and where we all were, the equestrian team, and said he thought someone ought to go over and uh, have a look at them and see if he could help. And, of course, being a junior officer, I got every assignment 
you know, that was sort of extra. So that's where I became first acquainted with the pentathlon. And then during the trials for the 52 game, they sent the team from West Point to me uh, to work with the pentathlon team. And so I had some contact. And then after the 52 games, uh, uh, my career branch told me that I really needed to start doing some Army stuff. So I got a really good assignment in Pennsylvania, Maryland, in the G3 section. But I wasn't there more than three or four months, maybe six. You know, I got a word, pack your bag, you're going to San Antonio, mm-hmm. which I really didn't want to do. But uh, I was told if I went down there and straightened them out, I would get promoted. And so uh, that turned out to be a, a really good assignment, a lot of fun, a lot of work. And the first thing we did was the, the Pan American Games and the First World Championships in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which meant we had to get 200 horses because in those days you had to have a horse for each athlete. And believe it or not, they went cross-country and they'd do the three-day course with three centimeters lower on a horse they never saw before. And the faster they went, the more points they got. So it uh, it was pretty challenging. And it took a super guy to do it. And then uh, it just kept growing and growing. I think we did maybe five world championships here in San Antonio. And, of course, there would be games all over. We were the first uh, military team to ever go to Moscow right after the, the war and so forth. Where would you have found your horses for the pentathlon in those days, John? Well, it's hard to realize it, but here in San Antonio, we put out notices all over Texas. We we're looking for horses, and we pay $150 apiece. <laughs> and the, the, the cowboys would bring them in, and we had some telephone poles down there. And we'd run them down over those, and those that looked like jumpers, we'd pay them, and the ones that didn't, they went back on the truck. And uh, in a short time, we had 200 horses ready to go. Well, and, and that would be the vetting, too, would it? You'd just uh, tell if they were sound or not, and they could jump, you'd buy them for $150. $150, and... Uh, <laughs> Actually, uh, some of them would be pretty good jumpers. In fact, uh, a dealer in the Chicago, named Asai James, he bought a uh, hundred of them in Chicago at the Pan American Games, paid a thousand apiece for them, and one of them became a national open jumper of the nation. But they didn't all work out that good, of course. But <laughs> So obviously being with the pentathlon team, you're looking at a different kind of horsemanship, aren't you? But all that you had learned through your military career would have helped you enormously, I would think, to to train these horses to be multitasking. Oh, yeah, we had. Uh, of course, we were, again, lucky enough uh, uh, with my job, I could bring in anybody, like when... Uh, Jimmy Walker got drafted. Uh, I brought him in, Mason Phelps, uh, Young McCashin. Uh, you know, 
every top horseman in the nation that got drafted, if I knew about him, I could bring him here to Pentathlon and they helped train the horses. So it, uh, it, it, it was a lot of fun, a lot of work, but it was, it worked out. Some fond memories. Any, any that yeah. stand out for you, John, in terms of the competitions you attended in your role with the pentathlon team? Um, I guess the one in Hershey weren't, uh, one of my lieutenants out there and built the course and, uh, he had an engineer company to help him, so like the Liverpool, instead of it just being a short ditch, he dug a damn thing six foot deep, and a few other places, the slide was not just a slide, but it was absolutely straight, and so we had it straight out of it, even then, just out of a lot of horses fell, and it was, again, it was won by the Russians. Well, for all the things that you've been through with horses, is there anything that intimidated you as a rider? No, I was pretty pretty lucky. And the big thing is uh, I never had to ride a horse that couldn't jump. Some of them were very unmanageable and pulled and reared and bucked and that kind of stuff, but they could all jump. So I was able to to do a lot and never got hurt and even to this day you know I have no particular injuries or anything well that's amazing you did mention a, a minor early injury in your in your military career how did how did you overcome adversity john throughout life throughout your military career and your role with the pentathlon as a rider coach instructor how, how would you overcome adversity oh I don't know. Everything just sort of fell in line. Uh, and early on, I decided uh, I'd seen so many people try to ride long after they should have quit. And that's one thing I decided is I was not going to do it competitively. Uh, uh, after I felt that I really wasn't at my peak. And what time was that? What, uh, what year was it that you actually retired from the competition scene? Well, really, when uh, my horse for the 56 games went lame, and she was one of the best horses I ever had, uh, broke a foot in her bone in her foot. And my reserve horse is a horse I bought from Winkler, but uh, he was a nice horse, but he was not an Olympic horse. And... When they all went out, I decided I'd go out with them. I think I was 35. Right. Well, you've obviously, as I said in my introduction, you've got children that uh, have followed in your footsteps somewhat and uh, and grandchildren now, and you have a business that has still emerged, as, it, as we talked about earlier. It's still a full-time job for you. Um, what do you do to relax, John? Is there is there any time to relax and reflect? Well, yeah, not really. Uh, I'm up and at it pretty much all every day, but at this age now, I take a siesta every afternoon. But we still uh, manage to go to the shows with 10 to 15 jumpers and uh, a couple of good ones. A couple of kids have some really good horses that uh, we brought on from nothing, and now they're just... Uh, 
starting into the little Grand Prix. So it keeps you busy and something to do. <laughs> it certainly does that, still teaching each day. And you must look back at the the horse world and how the sport of jumping particularly has evolved, John. What would you say were the kind of milestones and how do you regard the horse world and the sport today from your experiences over the years? Well, of course, it's so completely different today. Uh, uh, there's, there's, the team members all have their own coaches and own riders, and we have a national coach, but uh, they all have their individual people that look after them, and they meet for teams. And, of course, the money's incredible. Like a Texas girl here won over a million dollars last year on her jumper. And uh, there's a number of open jump riders today that, that uh, make over a million dollars a day with their jumping marshes. And there's classes now for a million dollars. Where back in my days, if we had a class of 25,000, you thought it was a miracle. <laughs> so really, it is very much the sponsorship and the increasing dollars in the sport that uh, what you see as most significant change that has changed. What about the horsemanship itself, though, John, about taking the money out of the sport? Tell us about uh, horsemanship itself. Well, I think, uh, of course, today there are, there are many, many more really good riders. And we have, uh, in this country, we have some really good riders. And, of course, back in my days, you know, uh, if you could get 10 or 15 top riders in one spot by uh, that was pretty good but today you can hold a really big Grand Prix and have you could not often but you could have up to 50 riders in it and and almost anybody that rides a Grand Prix today uh, you have to ride pretty good to even survive do you do much- I'd say the, I'd say horses horses are better and horsemanship better today do you do much reading, John? Do you read about horses? Do you read the magazines? What, 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 oh, yeah. What would be on your nightstand? Yeah, I read about everything that comes out. Find all the magazines. I guess I get a copy of practically all of them. Uh, uh, but one thing is that there's not many of the top riders that do any writing. Because they're so busy doing what they're doing, they don't have time to start with. But I think they, a lot of the top riders would have a lot of good information that uh, they could be passing on to the younger riders. And, of course, as you say, a few of them do. Some of them do. Jimmy Wofford, of course, finds time to write, but a lot of them that are active in jumping don't so yeah. much, unfortunately. Uh, who'd, who'd, when you look at the international scene, though, from here, John, you know, watching the development of the sport in Europe, what are your impressions now? I mean, you talked about how much better horsemanship is here. What about the show jumping scene in Europe, having had the experience that you've had in the past competing there? Well, I think worldwide, the Germans, uh, particularly in some of the other European countries, they all have systems where they have um, much better training programs, and then they have a system where they can pretty much make sure the best horses and best riders 
are on their team, where here, if Ryden has a choice of riding in a class for a million dollars or riding for a medal, I have an idea that do a lot of thinking to decide which class they're going to go in, where in Europe, uh, they're going to go for the medal. And uh, this Olympic Games will be very interesting as the Germans are tough and as always, and they're on tough in all three divisions. But uh, I think we also have some good good team coming. Yeah, it certainly is competitive. Well, I hope you'll be watching it uh, on TV because I know that you've been uh, an official now for for many years, haven't you, in the sport, both in uh, jumping and eventing. And as a dressage judge, uh, do you still play a role in uh, officiating at all, John? No, I had uh, I did carry a card in all of the disciplines, but uh, actually here, uh, as I slowed down, and particularly from San Antonio to do a four-day show in the north and northwest, uh, I do a four-day show at six days, and uh, besides, I'd uh, I'd done enough of it. I'd, if I had any spare time, I'd just soon do it around here at home. So at the end of... So I don't have any, so I don't have any cards at the moment. Right. So at the end of the day then, John, when you close the door, what matters the, is the most meaningful to you and, and how do you value your career with horses? Well, it's hard to give advice to to the young riders because not many of them have the opportunity I had and with the, the, the opportunities I had as a kid and then later on in the Army. Uh, it's the big thing is I think is, is for everybody to ride as many horses as they can and ride as much as they can and get with a good instructor. I think that's the main thing. Uh, uh, and unfortunately, it's too many of the top riders don't have the time uh, to spend with the young kids. But uh, I see them all over the country. Uh, they're 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 doing well. I think the I think the riding is in good hands. How would you like to be remembered as a horseman? Oh, I guess it's just as a guy that had did it all and, and had lots and lots of luck. And hopefully lots and lots of fun too. Yeah. Horses have been good to you, haven't they, John? Yeah, I was lucky. <laughs> wonderful. Well, what a terrific life and uh, wonderful memories. Thank you so much for being my guest and taking us down memory lane, John. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Please join me again next time when we celebrate the life of another equestrian legend. Mm -hmm.